Late last year, the uh, BBC republished what it called some of our, quote, finest stories from 2020, sort of a best hits of stories from 2020. One of those stories was titled, The Benefits of Having Many Lovers. The article focused on what's described as consensual non-monogamy, and it said this, regardless of the form it takes, one of the defining features of CNM, consensual non-monogamy, one of the defining features is that partners discuss and agree on the boundaries, such as how far they can go and when and where. CNM is just a, another dressed up attempt to legitimize people's urge to do as they please, to, to do what I want to do and, and to govern myself, particularly sexually. Now, the article goes on and it gives, as most of these articles do, a variety of expert opinions explaining how monogamy has run its course and become a relic of history and it concludes with an affirmation from a psychology professor who says that we ask a lot from our partners and perhaps we would be better off spreading our needs between more than one person. Sexual immorality has always been pervasive. This is not new by any means. What is perhaps for us somewhat new is the fact that it spreads so quickly via social media. We're exposed to so much more of it, plus the, the culture now is coupling that with this forceful push for affirmation. It's not merely that this is happening somewhere, but that this is something that you need to accept and agree to and affirm in some way. And that's why we're, we're doing this series, Redeeming Sex and Sexuality. And, and that's why in particular, I'm spending time on the, the foundation part of this series. This will be the sort of the last foundational element this morning. Week one, we looked at some reasons why this subject matters. Last week, we looked at God's design for sex and looking at sexual intimacy as part of a covenant marriage relationship between a husband and wife. We saw that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and we also saw how the, the law in Leviticus and again in Exodus, how it, how it hedges in God's design, how it shows how God puts boundaries around his design. And then Jesus reaffirmed that design we talked about last week in Matthew chapter 19. This morning, I want to build on, on this foundation um, and just seeing how God's Word consistently displays this design, how it, it, it upholds this design as being beautiful and wonderful and what God has intended and why it is important because we see it throughout Scripture, what, what is established in Genesis, what is um, sort of hedged in by the law, and what is affirmed by Jesus is all throughout Scripture. When the Bible speaks of sex, it is intimacy within the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Everything else falls outside of God's design and is, in fact, opposed to his design. Uh, we know that our culture rails against the assertion that monogamous heterosexual marriage is the exclusive form of marriage. Our culture resists that, but I, I would submit to you the question for us is, what does God's word teach? What does scripture teach and where is, do we see that pattern? And, and we saw it again last week in Genesis 1 and 2. Do we see that pattern upheld again and again and displayed throughout scripture? If God's word says it, then it has given us the instruction on this. So I'm going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 20. We'll have the verses up on the screen too, but if you want to turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 20. There are a number of verses that condemn practices that deviate from God's design. And over the course of this series and later weeks, we'll get to those. But this morning, 
My hope really is to overwhelm you with the positive. It is to, to portray the, the, the reality of the message of God's design and him displaying that design so that we would see again that sex is repeatedly shown as a good gift from God for a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God's law is offering instruction to the Israelites concerning military rules. Um, just sort of establishing some guidelines for their military practice. And one of the um, prevailing sort of themes in that to the Israelites is you never count on numbers. You don't put your trust in numbers, you put your trust in God. And so you should never be sold on the idea that you need more troops in order to win. You need to trust God for his provision. And, and in light of that, there are some exemptions from military service. And one of them is in verse 7. Deuteronomy 20 verse 7 says... And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. Now, to be betrothed is, is, is similar to, but, but um, more binding than what we would call engagement, that period prior to the, the wedding day. By betrothal, the, the couple is committed to one another. They are committed to marriage. The, the bride price, which was an ancient practice of the, the groom paying to the bride's family for a, a, a loss, a, compensating them for the loss of her contribution to the family, the bride price has been paid. All that remains at this point is the consummation of the marriage and the feast and celebration that goes with that. We know from the story of Mary and Joseph that if they are to separate at this point of betrothal, it requires an act of divorce. It would have required Joseph to give Mary a certificate of divorce. And so it's, it's kind of the, the epitome of sort of the already but not yet sort of theme we sometimes talk about in theology where we experience part of it in this life. The greatest is yet to come. They are already betrothed. They are already committed. They are not yet consummated the marriage, much like our union with Christ. We are joined to Christ. We are one with Christ. And yet the fullness of that experience, consummating that, the, the feast that we will have together still awaits us in heaven. We still look forward to, to what is to come. Betrothal was a union that brought exemption from military service. The, the, the instruction was no, stay home and, and, and consummate the marriage. And then once that is done, then Deuteronomy 24.5 says this, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. The first few verses of Deuteronomy 24 that precede this, verses 1 through 4, are restrictions regarding divorce. And so this verse comes in the midst of that and essentially adds strengthening to the bond of marriage, marriage being important. It is so important that the husband and the wife have time to build on this one flesh relationship that is God's design that he's given in Genesis chapter 2, that the husband is to stay out of the, the public light for a year. He's not to be in the army or, or liable for other public service. Um, in fact, Deuteronomy 24.5, it may in your text have a have a footnote to show that there's an alternate translation of the last part of that verse where it says um, to make his wife happy. Our, our, we, we just read he shall be free at home one year to be happy. New American Standard translates it this way. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Ladies, there you go. Either one of these, based on the Hebrew, is, is an acceptable way to say it. The, the, the point 
is the larger point that there is a call here to mutual happiness, to encouraging and serving and loving one another, establishing and grounding what has been started now as this one flesh relationship. It is that important that they strengthen that bond. All right, turn to Proverbs chapter 5. I would also submit to you, too, in, in those two references in, in Deuteronomy that we just read, both had the reference to the, the word wife, common Hebrew word that's, that's used there. If you did a concordant search of wife in the Old Testament, at least in the ESV translation, you'd find 300 plus uses of the word wife. And what's interesting is that I didn't see any, I didn't, I'll confess, I didn't look at all 300, but I didn't see any that, were, that had detachment from a husband. There's always this connection to the wife being connected to the husband, even the excellent wife. And Proverbs 31 goes on to speak of her husband praising her in the gates. There's always this connection throughout the Old Testament. The wife is always assumed to be the wife of a husband. And so the language is always along the lines of his wife or the man's wife or taking a wife. And, and, and I point that out because by sheer volume of example, the Bible is fully one-sided on this. Marriage is a man and a woman. It is a husband and a wife. It is what Scripture says over and over again. And so to offer some variation on this, some other form of marriage, if you will, is to envision something not found in God's Word, not condoned in God's Word, and in fact even condemned in places. But here in Proverbs 5, it's the father giving wisdom to his son. The concern for the son is sexual temptation. The, the reality is the father understands the power of temptation and he is trying to warn his son. And so in verse 3, he warns of a forbidden woman and cautions his son against pursuing this, this one who is sexually promiscuous. And so he is cautioning him. Spends the beginning of his argument making the case for why this is dangerous. We have a, a culture that, again, wants to emphasize just sort of the, the freedom and the license of sexuality and not talk about the consequences. This father is going to spend time in verses 8 through 14 walking through the, the dreadful consequences. If you go down this path, then you can expect to suffer for it. Life will be hard because you go this direction. We'll come back to those, those warnings later on in the series. But, but what he does then in verse 15 is he flips to the positive. He says, here's, here's what I want you to think about now as you think about sexual intimacy. Here's what I want to encourage you with. And he starts in verse 15 with a command. It's an imperative verb. He uses two in this passage in terms of commands. Uh, Proverbs 5, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well, should your springs be scattered broad, streams of water in the streets. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. He's previously condemned sexual sin. He's warned of the, the consequences, the, the, the fallout that could come. But now, as he is beckoning his son away from the sexual chaos of the world, he is now beckoning him with the call to what is right, what God has created, what he has established, and what he says is good. He is displaying God's design. It's not just do not but it's here is, here is the positive, joyful, exhilarating call of God. This is what God has designed to bless you with. 
And it is for sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. And, and, and he's making it clear that this is powerful. Talks about the love being intoxicating. It's strong. But the picture is that it can be wonderful. Proverbs 5 is, is acknowledging the fact that sex is enticing. We know that. Our culture knows that. We know it from our culture because our culture uses sexuality in such profound ways to try to appeal to us, to put images in front of us, to try to beckon us in some way. And so the culture is constantly on the side of sex being enticing. Look in Wikipedia under sex positivity. These are the kind of fascinating things I've been reading as I've been studying for this. Sex positivity, defined this way, an attitude towards human sexuality that regards all consensual sensual, uh, sexual activities as fundamentally healthy and pleasurable, encouraging sexual pleasure and experimentation. Again, this is, culture shouldn't Shouldn't shock us, even though sometimes when we read the words, it does, but it's saying that the allure of sex is strong, and men and women want free reign with it. They want to be autonomous about these things and do as they please, and so that's why they come up with things like consensual non-monogamy, so they can, they can do what they want, and then call it sex positivity, right? That's the happy term. So if you don't believe in sex positivity, you must be sex negative. So we're all frowning because we're sex negative. That is not what the Bible does, does it? No, no, the, the, the Bible paints this glorious picture that is completely countercultural. The argument from the other side is sex is, consenting sex is natural, healthy, and it's all under my own sovereignty. The Bible doesn't simply forbid that attitude, but it counters the lust and the excess of our culture with this incredible display of God's goodness in the gift that he has given and what he has designed. And so Proverbs 5 includes language of refreshment. It is to speak of this as something that is exhilarating. It is a wife and a husband who, who give to each other for the benefit of mutual pleasure. And he, the, the writer, in fact, uses this analogy of, of cold water, of, of drinking refreshing water. God created Sex within marriage to be like cool water on a hot day. So take one of those days back in the midweek, not, not the last couple of week, days, but back in midweek when it was hot and humid and cold water tasted so good. And, and, and that's what the writer in Proverbs, that's what God's word is saying. When he gives the, the two commands in this passage, the two imperative verbs are drink and rejoice. Both speak to satisfaction and contentment. Drink this satisfying cold water. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. And yet in both, there's restriction on both. Drink from your own cistern. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Wonderful romantic satisfaction is the creator's design, but he's also careful to put boundaries on it in that your desire is met with your spouse the one whom you are joined to by covenant. There is great freedom and expression within those boundaries. To borrow a metaphor from another writer who puts it so well, Ray Ortland said this, sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. Proverbs 5 is saying, keep the fire within the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. That is great imagery, and that is exactly consistent with what you're seeing the father say to his son in Proverbs chapter 5. 
All right, turn to, to Song of Solomon. We have to go to Song of Solomon at some point if we're going to talk about this idea of pleasure and God's design. We call it Song of Solomon because indeed it, it begins with the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. It's the, the first verse in it. That sort of lays out the, the title. Song of Songs is kind of like we would say Holy of Holies or King of Kings. This is the holiest place. This is the greatest king. This is the song of songs. So in this genre of, of writing, this song is above all others. And the idea then that it links back to Solomon, which is Solomon's, doesn't necessarily assure us that this is Solomon as author, and, and, and there, there's debate over that, and, and frankly, there is some question about that, because if you know enough about Solomon's life, you know the idea of single-minded devotion to one woman is sort of contrary to everything that we know about Solomon's life. What he could well be saying, the author as he writes this, is that indeed in, in that era, in that generation, that, that sort of writing, this sort of wisdom literature, was the domain of Solomon, was the one who wrote with great wisdom. And so there is a sense in which this is right out of the Solomon school of, of wisdom literature, this category of writing. What we do know is this. It's a, it's a poet. It's, it's a poem. It's a, a song that is in eight chapters, just a, a glorious expression of romantic love within marriage. We could spend a, a series of sermons on it, but we'll just hit some high points here this morning and, and, and pull out a couple themes. Song of Solomon begins with the voice of a woman. She's the dominant voice, dominant speaker in the book. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. It starts from there, and we just run headlong from this point on into this celebration of marital romance between a bride and a groom as they complement each other and describe one another in, in terms that, that are both poetic and at some points erotic, describing their passion for each other. I had a seminary professor who said, men, once a year, sit down with your wife and read through Song of Solomon together. It's one of the best things that you can do for your marriage is to see what God has designed and the joy that he wants to bring to your marriage in this. And, and, and that's what we see in Song of Solomon. The, the, the writer in, in 1.8 then tells us that the groom responds. She wants to, to kiss him. 1.8 says he describes the bride as the most beautiful among women, and they just go back and forth from there with these wonderful statements about each other. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 3, the woman speaking again. Chapter 2, verse 3, is an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. She's using poetic language when she speaks of the, the apple tree to say, my man is strong and he is handsome and there is no place that I enjoy more than just being with him, being in his shadow, being near him, being in, in, in this proximity. When she says that he's taken me to this place of feasting and his banner over me is love, the idea of the banner is the, largely in that culture would have, would have thought of the, the military banner, the, the banner of identification that says, I, I belong to, to this troop, to this regiment. I, this is my banner. This is where I belong. 
And so she's making a statement of belonging. This actually it goes back to God's design in Genesis. When she says, his banner over me is love, she's, she's recalling exactly what Genesis describes, that they shall leave mother and father and cling together, that they form this now, this, this one flesh unit and cling as one. There's a sense in which her, her description here is depicting submission. She is acknowledging his headship. I long to be in his shadow. I long to be under his banner. But it is, it is a joyful submission. Because what marks his banner is what? Love. He loves. He is sacrificially caring for her and loving her. Of course she loves the banner that is spread over her. And she is willing to submit here because there is such a wonderful, kind response of love. It's just a, a depiction of that. Just like we as believers in Jesus Christ grow and learn in our submission to Jesus, to, to Jesus right? We, we, we trust in him, we believe in him, and then as we grow as believers, we see what a, what a gentle shepherd he is, that he is our Lord and master, but he, he loves us and all that he does, he's shepherding us and caring for us. And so we, we learn to gladly submit and she is flourishing under her husband's loving headship. What makes Song of Solomon sometimes difficult, if you sit down and spend some time this week and you read it through, what makes it sometimes difficult to interpret is it sort of bounces around. It sort of moves in cycles and movements, and it's not simple, linear, sort of chronological, the way that guys like me would like it to be. Chapter 1. The couple meet. Chapter two, they are betrothed. Chapter three, they are at the wedding feast. You know, that, that would make it so simple for me to just understand where he's going. But, but instead, it, it sort of works in cycles and movements that go back and forth. And so with that in mind, if you look at Song of Solomon 2, verse 7, here's the bride again. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, this is interesting because it's sort of a moment of cold water here. It's like, wait, wait, stop. Stop for a moment. We're, we're, we're wondering and thinking and anticipating, if you will, with great passion, the, the consummation of marriage. Now, if you've read the verses before, it, it sounds as if they've already completed this and they are married. And, and, and what now becomes clear by her language is that there's also these scenes that move in and out. And she is anticipating. She is looking forward to that joyous day of the, of the feast and the consummation of their marriage. And so she is filled with anticipation. They're not yet married, but she longs for his embrace. And what she does here is, is wisdom. She asks her friends to provide a restraint. As I begin to talk passionately about this man with whom I will spend my life, as I begin to describe how wondrous and, and handsome he is and how he loves me, I want you, my friends, to say, not yet, not yet. The time is coming, but the marriage is still not Consummated. She's going to say this exact line two more times, chapter 3 and chapter 8, as the wedding day approaches. And essentially, she's, she's asking for help. We might, in our vernacular nowadays, say she's asking for accountability. In her eagerness to dream about and, and speak about the groom and her passion for him, her friends must help her. Say, okay, that day is coming. Let me read you one commentator who puts it this way. God has created us in such a way that love is powerful. Sexual passion is powerful. It's not something to be toyed with, yet neither is love or sex something to be denigrated or denied because it is somehow dirty or unspiritual. 
There is a proper time for love and sexual passion, a time when it will be appropriate and right to release its overwhelming power. Until that proper time comes, however, it is something to wait for, not to rush into. That is a fabulous comment on what we're seeing in Song of Solomon, which is that there is still, still a right time in God's design here that says it well. So I'll give you these, and you have these in your notes, just three quick bullet points from out of Song of Solomon. Number one, God has set boundaries around sexual intimacy. Something to be waited for. Just hold me back, daughters of Jerusalem. Now is not the time. There are, there are restraints for the moment until the time comes, which is the proper time, which points to the second theme that you see over and over again in Song of Solomon, and that is covenant commitment precedes sexual intimacy. The realm in which this union will take place is that of marriage. It is the joining together for a lifelong bond of husband and wife. And when that has happened, then that man pledges his lifelong sacrificial love. They are joined in a relationship and and Song of Solomon now will say over and over again, in fact, let me, Song of Solomon 2.16 and then again in in 6.3, she says, my beloved is mine and I am his he grazes, he grazes among the lilies. I'll say this, the last part of that verse probably is a euphemism. It's probably not talking about that he is the best botanist that I've ever met who plants really good flowers. There's probably more to it than that. You can read that on your own and think about it. I just want you to see what precedes that, and that is, my beloved is mine and I am his. That is a clear statement that what precedes the the intimacy that follows is the commitment to one another. It is the bond that I I belong to him, he belongs to me. We are joined in a covenant relationship. Song of Solomon cycles through all of these movements of desire and expectancy and and, and ultimately celebration. The end outcome is marriage. You you get to chapter four and, and four times the man refers to her as his bride. This is the expectation of that which will come together in a covenant of a husband and a wife. Third theme that we clearly get from Song of Solomon is that the Bible does not throw cold water on sexual intimacy within marriage. In fact, when it's in the timing of God's design, intimacy is to be celebrated and enjoyed. Over and over in this book, it is clear there is no shame between the husband and the wife. They describe each other in romantic physical terms. They are passionate about each other. They are desiring to give themselves to one another completely and and fulfill one another's desires. Song of Solomon is probably not the way that our culture imagines the Bible speaking about sexual intimacy, but it is. This is God's word. It's not unusual. Why don't you turn to one more place with me this morning, and that's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We have spent some time in the last couple of weeks in chapter 6, the passage that stresses you are not your own, you were bought with a price, flee sexual immorality, glorify God with your body because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We've also seen in chapter 6 where Paul recites back Corinthian sort of catchphrases or slogans, the, the, the things that they would say to justify their own, rationalize rather their own, sexual immorality. And so the the phrase is like, 
Um, I have complete freedom in Christ because he has fulfilled the law and I'm not bound to the law. I can do what I want to do as a license for sin. Or the idea that it's just the body, Paul, and the body dies and returns to the dust, so what I do with my body really doesn't matter. Those are the kind of phrases that they were using to rationalize immorality. We've talked about those already and, and, and seen Paul respond to them. I say that because the beginning of chapter 7 starts with another phrase. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and you, this is probably in quotes in your Bible, it says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's an interesting phrase. Paul's saying, okay, you've, you've written me some things here, and I'm going I'm to walk through these things that you've written about me. Let, let's start with the one that you said, that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with, relations with a woman. That sounds utterly contrary to everything that we would think about the Corinthians. And so what, what does this mean? Another way of translating this, the New American Standard said, it is good for a man to not touch a woman. That's literally what it speaks of in the Greek. It uses the idea of touch. So what does that mean? There's lots of discussions among commentators about this phrase. Widely agreed that the idea of to touch a woman is, is indeed a euphemism for sexual intimacy. That's why the ESV translates it as it does, to not have sexual relations. But still, what's the point? You get a phrase like this, and you're asking what it means. The, the scholars will tend to, in the Greek language, if it's not somewhere in the New Testament, is to go and look at other writers. The, the, the Corinthian people were often uh, into the wisdom of the age, and so what did Philo and, and others, Plato and Plutarch, what, what did they write? How did they use, if they used this phrase? And one of the things that's deduced is that it has the idea of a man taking advantage of a woman sexually, not not in the sense of an assault sort of thing or by force, but it's the idea of the man taking advantage by focusing exclusively on his pleasure. So in other words, what the slogan means, the way the Corinthians were using it is, a man should not have sexual relations with his wife simply for his own sexual pleasure. That's essentially how that comes to us, and we're going to see it here in the next few verses, because that's the point that Paul is rebutting, is this idea that sex really... When it comes to the husband and wife, essentially what the Corinthians are throwing back is it's, it's really just for reproductive purposes, that, that he, it shouldn't be about pleasure. And in an odd way, this is complementing all of their arguments in chapter 6, because what the men in Corinth, while professing faith in Christ, are doing is they are still going to temple prostitutes, and they're still excusing their behavior for that. And so essentially what they're saying is, well, that's out there, but within marriage... There, it's just for reproductive purposes. It's, it's limited to this narrow scope. And so Paul needs to speak to that. Read again, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Once again, the professing believers in Corinth have got it wrong. If they had simply gone back and read Proverbs or Song of Solomon, they might have already grasped this, that, that where they were going with this slogan was wrong, because what Paul writes back and he says, no, 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 no. There, there actually is pleasure 
in sexual intimacy within marriage. And, and that's where it's expressed. And so he says in verse two, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, he's acknowledging, I, I know that there's a lure here. I know what you're seeing out in the culture and, and at those temples out there. And, and sexual immorality, in fact, is plural here. And so he's, he's covering the whole realm of the temptation to sexual immoralities, to all of the things that are deviant from, from God's design. But his point is, God's design is that within marriage, sexual intimacy is to exist, and part of the reason is to help men and women combat the temptation for sexual sin. That, that, that's actually part of God's good design, is understanding the power of the Lord and now calling you together as husband and wife. One commentator puts it this way, fundamentally in the Bible, there are only two types of sex, sex within marriage and sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7.2 makes it inescapably clear, inescapably clear that while there may be a number of types of the latter, the only valid alternative to them is the former. There may be all of these forms of deviation, but what God has designed is sex within marriage. We're going to talk next week about singleness and desire and, and celibacy and these sorts of things because 1 Corinthians chapter 7 actually is a passage that, that makes some of the strongest arguments concerning those things and where God's design fits in that for believers in Jesus Christ. But ultimately, what it also makes clear is that for believers, there are two options, abstinence and marital intimacy. But we'll come back to that one. What I, what I do want you to see, though, in these verses is we're echoing again what we've seen in the design Proverbs and Song of Solomon, it, it is the fact that contrary to the, the cultural attitudes of Paul's day, sexual intimacy within marriage was to be glorious and mutual. It was to be a giving back and forth. As a matter of fact, the, the culture of that day, when it came to pleasure and desire, only focused on the male side of things. That was the only thing that mattered. And, and, and what the Bible is now saying is it's not just a male desire thing. The husband and the wife give themselves to each other. And so verse 4 says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. By God's design, sexual intimacy in marriage is to be regular, mutual giving of husband and wife to each other. So depriving or neglecting the other, except, as he says here, for mutually agreed upon reasons, is sin and is a violation of God's design. And just saying aside for just a moment, this is, this is not a sermon series on how to have a better marriage, and so I understand that sex is a portion of it, and I, and I don't want this to become the be-all, end-all um, in, in terms of your... I'll speak to my fellow men. This is not the chief application to take away is this point here and, and make this the whole centerpiece of, of marriage. It is crucial and it is to be practiced according to scripture and it is given by design. I also understand that there's a lot that goes on in marriage that we need to be working on as husbands and wives in loving and serving each other. This is one way in which we edify and help each other. Sex is powerful. It is filled with passion. And in marriage... It is to be practiced regularly as a means of mutually serving each other, as a means of being a hedge against temptation, 
as a means of reproduction and as a means of glorifying God with our bodies. All of that fits into this. I want to give you another quote from Ray Ortland. He's written a book, and I put the book in your notes, in your outline there, and I would highly encourage a small book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. Ortland writes this, Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. Marriage is distinguished by the all-inclusive scope of its claims upon the man and the woman. The two become one flesh, one mortal life fully shared with total openness, total access, total solidarity for the rest of their earthly days. A biblical marriage today offers the comfort of being known intimately by another and not embarrassed or ridiculed for any reason, but only welcomed and put at ease and embraced. Married couples still experience this aftertaste of Eden's perfect shalom in their gentle intimacy today. I think Ortland's exactly right. One of the glimpses we get of Eden is what goes on in marital intimacy, in the sexual intimacy within marriage. It, it echoes back to God's good design. And without blushing, without any sense of shame, the Bible describes the marriage bed as a place where the husband and wife multiply and fill the earth and glorify God and share themselves with one another and experience just a, a little slice of the perfection that, that Adam and Eve experienced. Listen, at, at the core of our, our culture's perversion of sex is the idea that marriage is a social convention, that, that marriage is something that can be flexed and changed and should evolve, and that it involves traditions and whatever the, the whims of society are, and therefore the design for marriage as we see it happening before us is evolving. Once you've said that, then consequently sexual in intimacy, which God has designed to work together with marriage, once you've done that, then sexual intimacy is largely without boundaries. It becomes the free-for-all that says, it's about what I wanna do, and what feels best for me, and, and, and what somebody's consenting with me about, and, and what pleasure I can have. This is the argument of the culture. I want to be autonomous. My body, my choice, is, is what we hear all the time. And, and once the God-ordained institution of marriage is twisted so that it can be whatever man imagines it to be, then the license for sexual immorality is limitless. Because there are no more Hedges, there's no more purpose, there's no more boundary other than what I decide it to be. Sexual intimacy merely becomes a human activity to be transacted for personal pleasure. In Jeremiah 2.13, God said this, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns, wells for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Therein lies the tragedy of man's deeply selfish approach to sex. We abandon the good design of God and the satisfaction and joy that he intends to be coupled with that design and we trade it for something of our own making that never fully satisfies. He said, you've traded me and my well of refreshing living water for something that is dry, and it offers nothing. It is, it is what man is tempted to do with all of God's good gifts. That's why we've said from the beginning of this series, this is not just about sex. This is a fundamental issue of belief. 
It is a fundamental issue of saying, what God has given me, I, I don't care if he's given it to me or not. It's for me. It's for me to use and, and, and for me to be happy with and pleased with. And that's what man does with God's gifts. That's what man does with Jesus Christ. I, I, I'll take a little bit of Jesus if I need a little bit of Jesus or whatever spirituality. In the gospel, our creator has given his perfect son. A son who has come and said, I am like living water. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. If you come to me, you will find joy and satisfaction and peace and contentment. If we will put our hope in Christ, if the gospel will be our ultimate joy, trusting in Jesus Christ and, and finding the forgiveness of our sins and acknowledging our need as sinners that we are broken in sexual sin and in all sorts of other forms of idolatry, that we need Christ and his grace. If we will run to him, that's where the joy and the satisfaction is. If we will run to the banner that is Christ's love, and he be the one that is over us, the one perfect lover who gave himself in our place on the cross. And in Christ, there is abundant life and joy for all of eternity. There's no substitutes. That, that's, why, that's why as we watch our culture and we watch it go further into degrading itself and, and, and new perversions. That, that's what you do when what you find keeps leaving you thirsty. When you keep going back to an empty well. You know, we'll, we'll try digging a well over here and see if this one will work. And Christ calls us to himself. Come to what I have provided. Come to what I have designed. And find your hope in me. Amid the warnings in the... The book of Ecclesiastes. I just want to finish with a quick quote from Ecclesiastes. You know how much I love Ecclesiastes. How fleeting life is and how we grasp for things. The writer says this in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. There is God's word saying and reaffirming again to us that intimacy is part of his good design for his creation. And he wants for men and women to enjoy it, but it is within the lifelong covenant of marriage in which he has established it, in which he repeats as a consistent display all throughout Scripture to keep reminding our wandering hearts, this is what I have designed. This is what I have for you. This is the sweet gift of my grace for you to enjoy. You will enjoy it as I have laid it out for you. Now let's pray together. Father, we come to you as people who, as we walk through this series, are awakened to our own struggles with lust, with sexual sin, with just all of the different temptations and challenges that, that seem to come up. We come to you as a, as a broken people in need of the, the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would labor diligently to find our, our sweetest joy and satisfaction in knowing Jesus Christ. That we would long to meditate on him, to read, to pray, to, 
to follow after Christ. And that in Christ we would find a joy and a satisfaction of thirst that surpasses all others. Your Spirit is eager to help us do that. And so the conviction of sin that perhaps we felt in our conscience, even as we've walked through portions of Scripture today, is a gentle reminder from your Spirit that there is hope and healing in Christ, that there is forgiveness and reconciliation. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning or watching online for whom this has stirred feelings of guilt or shame, someone who has perhaps never put their trust fully in Christ, Lord, I pray that they would, not, they would not go from here believing that somehow the takeaway is to just straighten up their ethics, just live right, do the right things sexually and, and wait, and, and it'll all be right. Lord, I pray that you would, you would cause them to see that the hope that you offer is only in Christ and his gospel. It is only through turning from sin and running to Jesus, running headlong to this beautiful groom, the one who has come and loves us perfectly and eternally, that in him is the forgiveness of sins and the hope for eternal life. Father, for we, your people, pray that you would grow the marriages in this church family, cause us to mature and strengthen them by the working of your spirit in us, causing us to look at our own hearts where we have deviated from your path, where we have allowed worldly desires to creep in, where we need help. Help us to be a people who, like the, the bride in Song of Solomon, would not be afraid to ask for help, would not be afraid to cry out to the daughters of Jerusalem to, to restrain me, to help me. Lord, thank you for that sort of openness. Help us to be that way as brothers and sisters to encourage, exhort, and help each other. We pray most of all, Lord, that as a body of believers, that how we live out marriage, purity, love for Christ, that all of it would be a great display of the gospel of our Savior, that people would see in us not a people who are um, special by any means, in and of their own right, not because of anything we have done, but because of you working in us. That is, that is where our glory lies. It is in what you have done. Thank you for the good gift, all of the good gifts that you have blessed us with. Chief among them, your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.